Would you open God's precious holy word to John chapter 1 and verse 14. Verse 14 is my favorite verse in the Bible. I am not worthy, I cannot crawl into the outer banks of the presence of its meaning. But we'll try. This rests, now the prologue of John's gospel goes through verse 18. Uh, verses 1 through 13 has been headed to the point that he makes here in the first part of verse 14. So we are moved then to think about what has been said before, particularly in the first two or three verses. Into the beginning was the Logos. That's a prevailing word here in these first 14 verses, especially the first three and then here. Logos in review. Translated word. There are more than one Greek words for this word, word. This one means A, an expression that is made manifest. So in the, in the meaning of logos, the Greeks would have us to go into the mind of the one who will express it and understand that Logos is first gathered in the mind of the expressor. It comes from a thought the thought becomes an idea that must be expressed openly, gathered into the mind of the one who will express it, <clears throat> excuse me, is the wisdom and the knowledge, the passion, the love, everything about the one who will express it first is here. And whatever will be expressed will reflect all of those things that will tell us about the one who expresses it. So now this thought, this thing that will be shared and once shared can never be taken back. 
Apologize mean, is a word that we think, well, I apologize. Do you know really, in reality, there's no such thing as an apology because it means to take back the word. Apologos, it means to take it back. It's, once it's shared, it's there. Christ tells us every word we speak will come into judgment. So once shared, it remains as, the part, as a part of the one who shares it, but now it becomes a part of the one who hears it and receives it. Logos, the word. In the beginning was the logos, the word. And the logos was with God and the logos was God. He is the one who is the same in the beginning and all things through him became, were created. And apart from him, nothing was created that has been created. So everything, every life, every day, every second of a person's life, every flare of a, of a distant star, everything was made by him. And he is life. He's light. And then he's life. Almighty God, the Godhead. Can never be completely known. To us, law of cause and effect, the, the effect is less than the cause and can never be as great as the cause. We can never be as great as God. God transcends time and space. He's beyond it. He's before it. He's after it. He's in it. He's above it. He's, he's ever below it. I mean, just whatever, however you want to think, it's, it's impossible to extract a word from the English language and think that you can somehow apply it to God, even the word infinite. Once we, once we say the word infinite, now we've made a definition and, and God cannot be even placed in a word that is defined by man. However, in his wisdom to display his glory, God determined that he would create everything that we know, the universe and all that's in it. This would be the job of God the Son, the second of the Trinity, and he would bring from within himself time and space. He would make it. He would even accommodate himself to it. And so if there is life, he brought it from where he was into where he is in his creation. 
If I have an existence, he brought it with him. And he placed it along the timeline according to his purpose and for his glory. And the same is it is with you. And so he comes forth in mighty creative power. He is the expression and the definition of life. And so within his created universe, he will bring with him light and life. Time moves according to his plan. And he wrote a book about me and he wrote a book about you, Psalm 139. And there's an end to that book somewhere. And he wrote it. Creator God. To try and define God apart from the way God has revealed himself is utterly impossible. It's foolish to even think or to try to think of a, of a way to define God. So bringing life and light to enlighten us he created physical life. He created spiritual life. He would finally and ultimately redeem all of those whom the Father had given to him. John chapter 6. We'll get there one day. And then John comes to this first part of verse 14. And the Logos became flesh. Became. Agenital. That's a, that's a time and space word. Logos became in time and space, he became a man. John will never call himself, John the writer of the gospel will never refer to himself by his name, he cannot. How could he? <laughs> He's writing about God who came into a speck of his created order for the sake of his own. John could never Lose sight of the truth that the creator of everything came and stood as a man and walked by him. John had looked into his face. John heard his teaching and watched him in demonstrating his power. And so John would only refer to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved or the one whom leaned upon his breast. But he could never think of him, he could not, he could not call himself 
by name, it just, it just didn't seem appropriate because he thought of himself as, I'm just this one. And that's all. In the last couple of weeks, I read several articles about the recent discovery in June of this year, the, the month where we are, uh, this recent discovery of the Ark of Galaxies. I thought everybody would go, yeah, I read that, but you haven't read that. <laughs> I'm going to tell you about it. They were studying quasars, this group of highly trained, very intelligent scientists, astrophysicists, and using all the latest and most modern equipment. They saw something from, for the first time. They called it the Ark of Galaxies, A-R-C, the Ark of Galaxies. It was described like this, biggest thing we've ever seen. In our view, in the plane of view that we had, and we could only see so far this way and so far this way, and we couldn't see any further, hey, we don't know. What we saw straight ahead in the plane of view took up two thirds of the expanse of the universe as we know it. Two thirds. The arc of galaxies. And it was like this. It was a smiley face. Now, if it had a wink there, I would say, okay. They said, if you take the known universe, thus they acknowledge that there's so much more we don't know or can see. But if you take the known universe, this arc of galaxies consumes 7% of the known universe. 7%. It is at least 10 billion light years from one edge to the other. I read about, I don't know, six or eight articles, and they all pretty much said the same thing. One thing that really struck me that they all said was this. We are going to have to rethink our cosmological principles. Cosmology, that's the study of creation, how things originated. We're going to have to rethink our cosmological principles. Physics as we understand it, time and space as we thought we knew it, has just been set in disarray. Because no, <laughs> he said, nothing that big should exist. <laughs> Apparently there would be too much gravitational pull and all this kind of stuff and make it blow up or tear up. I don't know. Here's why they're going to have to rethink their cosmological principles. 
they didn't have it right in the first place. They keep running from the biblical truth of creationism. That brings me back to Logos. This immense structure that is unthinkable to me, I can't, I, I don't, can I, think of, can I think of the space of 10 billion light years? No. I know how big my waist is. It's a light year and a half, but, uh, but 10 billion light years, that's an unthinkable thing. I can't, what? Now, I don't know, if you're in the southern hemisphere and you look at it, it may be a frowny face instead of a smiley face. But I thought it was unique that this thing is smiling at them. You know, it's like, you don't know what I know. Because I spent a portion of time this week studying the scriptures that reference the hidden things of God, the secret things of God. To sum it all up, among the things that are hidden and secret from us are the secrets of creation itself. That's too big of a deal for us to think about. When I finished my PhD, before I, in order to finish the dissertation, I had to study quantitative analysis. <laughs> Let me tell you this. There is no positive cash flow in quantitative analysis, all right? You need to be a plumber or something that'll make you money. Really, I'm serious. So I, I had to spend a lot of money on a program that would do the work for me, right? But still, you got to know how to put the stuff in the program. If you get it wrong, you, you don't get the right answers. And I think of all that, uh, that people think they know. And in this program, if you messed up the least little bit, you wouldn't get the right answer for the significance of the, of the hypothesis. You wouldn't, it would mess up. Everything that you've ever done just get messed up. There are these secrets of creationism, of creation, that are too big for our minds. It's, people want to study it, that's fine, I guess. But you're going to spend, when you think you have an answer, Big Bang or whatever, when you think you have an answer, something's going to happen to throw you for a flip. You're going to come to an arc of galaxies or whatever, and you're going to hear all the bigwigs. They're going to say, we're going to have to rethink our cosmological principles. That's because creation is a thing of God. It's not a thing of man. God does these things. God asks Job those questions, you know. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the world? Job. What could he say? He would have to ask, well, what's a foundation of the world? Have you ever entered into the treasures of a snowflake? 
I read that no snowflake is ever like another. They're all different. Now, who, who knows that? There's this guy. He has collected every snowflake since the beginning of time. He's kept it in a freezer. And he meticulously compares every snowflake with all the others. Now, the Bible doesn't say that there's not one identical to another one. There could have been a snowfall in the Ice Age that would have a bunch of snowflakes like the ones that fell on Shagbark not long ago where I live. I don't know. Nobody knows that. But I'll tell you this. And I've seen the high speed cameras on, on TV and you have two when they begin to form, when they begin to form. It's a marvel to watch. And two of them don't form the same way. And it's beautiful. It's a treasure. Explain to me how one does this geometrical pattern. It, and it's, what, six points? And this one does a completely different pattern, although they are in the same environment. There are secrets that belong to God and not to man. Hidden and deep things. And the one who made it so. Stood with John. Walked with John. Accommodated himself. To space and time. He became flesh. Sark's flesh. Now don't get a. Don't get a ultra spiritual definition of this. Logos, the logos. Who encapsulates time and space. Came into time and space. He became flesh. And this would be the flesh of Adam. He wept, he bled, he enjoyed himself, he ate, he had friends, things would grieve him, he became angry, and he died for a purpose, he died. And the Logos became flesh. God, in a condescension, the definition of which I will pursue into the ages of the ages, became a man, the God man. His deity is not diminished. But God became a man. Only one. The virgin born Christ. God became a man. Jesus of Nazareth died. He died for a purpose, namely... For his own. We studied in Ephesians. 
Christ died for his church. He died for his own. We are ransomed. Those whom the Father has given to him, we are ransomed. Only he could do it for me. The only begotten son. And he was put in a grave. And he was raised again. With great power. So he is the resurrected, empowered son of God. Who now receives back to himself a peculiar glory that is his, but it is a glory that can fit into time and space. And it is the glory of God the Son. Some infinitely glorious day. When we gaze upon the Christ who comes again. We will see God who became a man. And he comes as God's only begotten, God the Son, for us. With all of this great power, with the hidden secrets of creation itself. Holding within himself all of existence. You know, Paul, I've said this before, but it's, it's, it, it, it's so fits the narrative here. Acts chapter 17, Paul preaches in Thessalonica and then he goes to Berea and then he winds up in Athens and he's just hanging out waiting for his traveling group to join him. But then these guys are preaching these philosophies, these gods and goddesses. His spirit gets stirred. So Paul stands up and starts preaching, Jesus Anastasia, Jesus, and the resurrection. Well, they came and got him, sort of like arrest. They arrested him, sort of, and took him up to Mars Hill, the Areopagites, these 30 brilliant men. It was, their, it was their caste of men who condemned Socrates to death to drink the hemlock. And this could have happened to Paul if they didn't like what he said. Paul said, I saw an altar to an unknown God, and you worship him ignorantly, and I've came to tell you about him. And he goes through creationism. He made all of us. He made everything in heaven and on earth. He made it all. And then he made us all, those who are of the nations, he made us all of one blood. Not only that, he appointed our times and our habitations. And in him, and this is the point, and in him we live and move and have our existence. In him, literally it would say, in him we live, we move, and we are. In him. He contains it all from the beginning. To, he's, he's already in tomorrow. He's still in yesterday. He's everywhere. He's all encompassing. He is the one who will bring it all to an end. He is the one who presides at the great white throne from whose presence the earth and the heavens will fly away. And the Logos became flesh. For those years, John by his side... John references the power 
of the Christ in his epistles says, says something of the same thing that he says here in chapter 1. John could never lay aside the truth of the deity of Christ. He stood by me. I looked into his eyes, into his face, and he loved me. The one who made everything. And the Logos became flesh and tabernacled among us, eskenosin, to tabernacle. Skeno, the root is a tent. Logos became flesh and pitched his tent among us. I said that wrong once and I, I, I go real slow. I, pitched his tent among us. Skano to tabernacle. Did you know in its strictest sense, it's a, it's a military term. Troops would march. They're on a mission. They've been given orders and they're on a mission and they're going to accomplish this mission. When they get to where they have to go to accomplish the mission, they pitch their tents because they're not going to stay there. They're only there to do what they've come to do. And when that's over, they will strike the ropes of the tents and go back from whence they came. How beautiful the word that the Holy Spirit uses through the hand of John. And the Logos became flesh and pitched his tent among us. He had a job to do. He did not become a man that he, would, that he might would remain among us like that. That's not why he came. He came to die. He came to redeem Christ on the cross. Whose blood was shed for me. In every way he became a man except apart from sin. 2 Corinthians what, five? He was apart from sin. Virgin born Christ. He tabernacled among us. He came to accomplish the task for which he came. And when that was over, he would strike the ropes of the tent and go back to where he came, from where he came. How many times did Jesus say, my hour has not yet come? My hour has not yet come. Until finally in John 17, he praised the prayer, Father, 
The hour has come. It's about time to strike the rope of the tent, engage the battle, defeat the enemy, and go back from whence I came. He tabernacled among us. Now, when we get past the prologue in verse 18, how and why all that happens, that this Logos, all of the things that he did, not all of them, but the things that John's gospel would include, are a reflection back on who he is and what he came to do. And we beheld his glory. We know that he is God because he brings as God the Son glory from God the Father. Here it is. And we beheld his glory, glory as of an only begotten from the Father. Yahweh said to Moses, I'll let you see the residue of my glory, but you can't handle my glory. I'll just have to let you see what you can handle, the leftover part of it. Then as a flaming pillar of fire, he was with his people. Glory was seen Tonight, God willing, we'll be in Leviticus and we'll see how the glory of God comes once the finalization of the appointment of Aaron and his sons is made to the priesthood and then the glory of God fills the place. We beheld his glory. Glory given to him as God the Son from God the Father. And he is full of grace and truth. Pleres full. Caritas of grace. Pleres from pleroma. It means, it means abundant fullness. It means that Logos, when he became a man, and especially when he pitched his tent among us, and he came to accomplish a specific task, when he came, he was completely filled with grace. Now he's coming again, and like the, like the bumper sticker says, and boy is he mad. But today you and I find ourselves basking in the radiance of the glory of God the Son who is at this moment in his existence as we understand it filled with grace. There is there's not a square millimeter anywhere 
in his existence that is not full of grace. Full of grace. He has saved me. I'm not worthy. I still am not worthy. But he has saved me. He has saved me not because of who I am or what I have done or what I will do. He has saved me by grace because he's filled with grace. Whatever exists, whatever sin exists is not part. He can't, he's apart from sin. It cannot abide in any way in God the Son. He's full of grace. So any sin that can be committed, any sin that can be imagined is not too great for the grace of God. Where sin has abounded, grace has much more abounded. He came and when he came, he came full of grace. No one, no one Who comes to Christ by the will of the Father. No one, regardless of who he is, will be rejected. If I can remember what Spurgeon said to quote his quote, something like this. When I get to heaven, these things I will ponder upon. Number one. I will be surprised that there are those there that I did not think would be there. Number two, I will be amazed that there will be those who will not be there that I thought would be there. And number three, and the greatest miracle of all is that I'm there. Full of grace. He's coming in wrath someday. He'll come again in wrath. But right now he's full of grace and truth. Truth. Eletheus, truth. He's, he is truth. He is truth. I told you a while ago. These high-paid, highfalutin guys are scratching their heads. They're thinking, and they're all saying, it's the same thing in the articles that I said. They all agree. We're going to have to rethink our cosmological principles. That's because you're pursuing falsehood. He is truth. And he tells us what we can hold. And I know that many of you, most of you, I hope, maybe all of you are students of the Bible. You read that Bible through and you go back and read it again. And I'll tell you, if you're like me, you will find that every time you read a familiar passage of Scripture, you will find that it means something greater and different than it did before. It's because the Word of God is alive. It never stops giving. Never. Why is that? Because the Word who became flesh 
and came to us to accomplish his mission, himself is full of truth. There's nothing counterfeit or false about the lovely, wonderful, beautiful, glorious Christ of God, our Savior. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he came into this world to save sinners. Here is the way we handle the appeal, the invitation. If you're here today and you would come to Christ, God is calling you. You would come to Christ by faith. You're invited to come right now publicly during our invitation. Maybe you're here and you're a Christian. You're saved. God leads you to come and be a part of this church as a member. And you want to do that publicly, you come. If you leave and you have a question, you want to talk to somebody about any of those things, we also have deacons and wives waiting across the hall to discuss these things with you. So this invitation is all about you according to the will of God. Father God in heaven, bless this invitation and use it as you see fit. In Jesus' name, prayerfully, would you stand all over this room? She's going to play through one verse of our song of invitation. You come, would you?